Good morning, my name is Isaiah, and I have the privilege to read today's scripture, which comes from Acts 16, 1-5. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance, the decisions that have been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now at this time, let's give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Isaiah. Yeah, let's, let's encourage Isaiah. He did a great job. It's awesome seeing our youth students come up here and just be active participants of our worship service. I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to share God's word with us. We're still on our Acts series, as you can see. The title of this sermon is Passing the Faith to Our Kids. Parenting is hard. I'm not a parent, so how do I know this? It's because this is what I know about parenting. Parenting is one sinner trying to raise another sinner in a sinful world. And that sounds pretty tough. And so I don't need a parent to know that parenting is hard. And what are we trying to raise our children to be? Well, if you're not a follower of Christ, you can raise your children however you want. The goal could be academic or athletic achievement. It could be financial success and stability. However, if you are a follower of Christ, then scripture actually teaches us how we are to raise our kids and what the main goal is for our children. The main goal is this, that we want our kids to know and follow Jesus. We see this in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is actually about parenting, although not explicitly, but it's very related. You might think, well, isn't Acts about missions? What does that have to do with parenting? And if that's you, I would say, if we think parenting and missions are so different, then we are actually really mistaken. They're actually very similar. The Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, to reach people with the gospel, to preach to them that they are sinners in need of saving, that there is a holy God, and the only way to have a saving, right relationship with him is by repenting, acknowledging I am a sinner, placing my full trust in Jesus, that he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for sins, took the wrath of God and the punishment that we deserve, and rose from the dead. And we become children of God, and we have everlasting hope. Everyone needs to hear that including our children, because our children, they are not born believers. Our children are not born knowing who Jesus is, just like how people across the world are not born knowing who Jesus is, which is why we send missionaries across the world. But we're called to make disciples everywhere, beginning in our homes. And so the parents' primary responsibility, you could say they are missionaries to their children. Their children, your children, need to be evangelized to. They're sinners in need of saving. 
The first point, parents, you are primarily responsible to help your children know and follow Jesus. Because as believers, you'll, you'll agree with me on this. What good is it if we help our children gain the world, but they lose their souls? What we primarily want for our children is for them to find the living hope and the peace and the joy, forgiveness and grace, the security that only comes in Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 16, what Isaiah just read, it's the first example of a second generation believer. In other words, Timothy is a child of a first generation believer. So on his first missionary journey, the apostle Paul, one of the cities he stopped by was the city of Lystra. And he preached the gospel. A lot of people believed, including two people, Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother. They came to faith, and then they raised Timothy in the faith. Timothy is the first example in Acts of a second-generation believer. His parents, or his mom, was a believer. His dad is mentioned in this passage. He's a Greek. He's not a believer. We don't know much about him. He wasn't involved in discipling Timothy. But again, the grace of God, that even though one parent is not very active or involved in the faith, and maybe that's you where your, your spouse is not very interested in raising your children in the faith. Or maybe they themselves are doubting or wavering in their own faith. But we see the grace of God and how Eunice and Lois' faithfulness in discipling Timothy led him to not just believing in Jesus, but actually a mature faith. So mature that on his second journey... When Paul returns to Lystra, it says that Paul wants Timothy to accompany him on this second missionary journey. Timothy does, and he's probably in his late teens. That's remarkable. And then later on, they would build this spiritual father and son relationship. Near the end of his life in prison, Paul would write Timothy these warm pastoral letters called 1st and 2nd Timothy. But what we want to look at here is the responsibility that parents have to raise their children in the faith. And I believe that when I say that, or when you look at this point, there are some of you here who are hearing that for the very first time. Some of you here, some parents are thinking, since when? This is news to me. I've never heard that before. And I don't blame you because many of us, especially growing up in an Asian church, a Korean American church, Our parents, they just dropped us off at Sunday school. They just dropped us off at youth group. They picked us up after church, and that was it. We never talked about our faith during the week. We never really talked about God in our conversations. And so that is your experience for many of you. And so it makes sense why you're surprised hearing this for the very first time. I think there are other parents here who have heard this. They've heard this before. However, maybe you feel a little lost. You don't know where to start. Maybe you feel even guilty. Maybe you've tried and you feel like, man, whatever I do is just not working. And maybe you've given up. I say all that because there is no parent here who would say, I'm just crushing it with this discipleship thing. It's easy. I'm just doing it so well. How are other parents not doing this? It's hard. Like I said before, why is it hard? Parenting is one sinner trying to raise another sinner in a sinful world to look like Christ. That's not an easy task. So we're going to learn together. 
And we're going to look at Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother. They're not perfect examples, but in Scripture we see that they are positive examples of what it looks like to disciple our children and to raise them in the faith. And we're going to look now a lot at 2 Timothy because Paul expounds on what Lois and Eunice did to bring Timothy to a mature faith, even as a late teen. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 15 says this. Paul writes this. But as for you, he's writing to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so what we're going to do now, we're going to look at principles, not formulas, but principles to help your children know and follow Jesus. If you are not a parent, you are still called to be a spiritual mother or father. Whenever an infant is baptized, all members of Christ Central stand up and we take vows. We promise to help raise these children in the faith and to support parents. So this applies to everyone here. Those who are parents, those God may bless to be future parents, and those who are not currently parents. So here are principles, not formulas, to help our children grow in the faith, because there is no exact recipe to guarantee our children will be saved. Doesn't exist. However, in scripture, although there is no precise recipe, there are ingredients for discipleship. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, he writes about how, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. Even the Apostle Paul is acknowledging there's only so much they can do. But at the end of the day, it's God who has to bring about that change. It's the Holy Spirit who softens hearts and opens darkened eyes that they may see Jesus repent and place their faith in him. But Paul doesn't shirk his responsibilities. He still admits, I need to water and I need to plant. Paul knows he has a responsibility. And in the same way, parents also have a responsibility to water and to plant. And we pray that God would give the growth. And we don't know when or how that works. That's the hidden work of the Holy Spirit. We see that all throughout Acts. No one can predict it. No one can plan it, just like how there's a revival going on in Asbury. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But we plant and we water, and so that's what we're going to focus on. What does this planting and watering look like? In preparation for this sermon, because I am not a parent, I read a bunch of books, read a bunch of blogs, listened to different podcasts, And it's good hearing from the experts, they're very helpful, but I wanted to hear from other experts, meaning children of believers who are still walking with the Lord. I wanted to hear from them, what is it that their parents did that had the most impact on their faith? In other words, I wanted to know, why are you a Christian? Why are you still a Christian? I spoke to a high schooler a college student, two young adults in their 20s, and also a mom in her 40s who has two daughters of her own, ages 10 and 12. And this is what I learned from them. And a lot of it does align with what I read from the experts as well. But I wanted to share what I learned from them, from their perspective. I think it's important to hear from them what really mattered. 
And we're going to learn these things from scripture as well. First is this, starting early from childhood, 2 Timothy 3.15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So the first thing is to start early. Some parents may say, what's the point? They're just so young. They don't understand anything. To that, I would push back a little and say, we don't know the hidden work of the Holy Spirit and what God is capable of and what he is doing in their little hearts and minds, the seeds that are sown and being watered. You just don't know. Don't presume that being a Christian is purely just intellectual and requires this deep comprehension of the truths. Yes, they need to know the truths, but the Holy Spirit is capable of doing so much. Start early. And I would say start early, not just for the sake of the kids, but actually for you as parents. Because if you think, oh, maybe we'll start a few years later, if it's not a routine or habit earlier on for you as parents, it might get harder for you to start later on, you and your spouse. So start early for the sake of your children and for your own sake. And next, we want our discipleship to be Bible-based. It's all about what does God say? 2 Timothy 3.15, again, it says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which, is, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Their discipleship, Lois and Eunice, was based on the word of God. This is so important. And then the following verses, Paul says, and Chapter 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's the word of God where we learn to train and raise and teach our children. It's also where we learn to discipline and correct and rebuke our children as well when that time comes. And the overall goal is this, that our children would develop a Christian worldview. In other words, we want them, when they look at this world, to see everything through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of the gospel. Because there is a tug of war with what the world says and what the Word says. And let's be honest, there's often a tug of war between what you as parents want and believe and what God says and wills. We want our children to know that you are not the ultimate authority. That God is. And that if you as parents say anything that is contrary to what God says, you would hope and pray that your children would listen to God before you. That is the goal. And this is a struggle for a lot of parents. And so what, what does it mean to be Bible-based? It's not just teaching the Bible, but it means you as parents have to do this. To surrender to the authority of Scripture. You first have to say, God is the authority of my life. What God says is the final say. What he says about marriage, what he says about parenting, what he says about discipleship and following Jesus, what he says about these values, 
or those topics, God has the final say. Because if you as parents are the final and ultimate authority in your child's life, then you're going to raise your children to be disciples of you rather than disciples of Jesus. You're going to raise them to be little versions of you rather than followers of Christ. And so it begins with you first saying, God's word is the ultimate authority in all matters of life. Where do we begin to teach our children a biblical worldview? Of course, it's the Bible. Where do you start? Do you just take a two-year-old and start in the book of Genesis and just start reading through? Don't do that. Discipleship requires a lot of wisdom. It needs to be age-appropriate. I believe you can teach big truths to little hearts. I think that's very possible. And that the Holy Spirit can impress those truths upon their minds at a very early age. But it requires wisdom. And thankfully, if you didn't know this, we're actually living in a golden age of Christian resources and publication. Five, ten years ago, it was pretty bleak and barren. But the past few years, there's all these resources, books being printed, published all the time to resource and equip you parents to disciple your children at home. One example is the New City Catechism, which is a modernized version of the catechism. It blends the Heidelberg and Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it's written in such a way to help parents catechize their children at home, to teach them the truths. You can go to the website, download the app. There are songs that go along with every catechism question and answer to help your kids learn and memorize the truths of Scripture. There are so many children's books out there that are so good as well. And I do want to mention one and highlight one that I just learned about recently. The series is called Good News for Little Hearts. And this one book uh, talks about when you are sad. And it's to help parents speak the gospel truth and biblical truth into their kids' lives when they're experiencing grief or loss The series is actually based on the CCEF biblical counseling model. And so it's actually taking parents by the hand and basically teaching them how to be a biblical counselor to their children. You can see the cover of the book um, on the screen. I believe we have that. And this book is about a boy, Henry, a porcupine, who lost his pet ladybug. I know that sounds very childish, and that is the idea, but the truths in here are actually really good. And it's about helping your kids with sadness. I want to read this one excerpt here. We hate to see our children sad, but we also know there are many griefs to come. So now is a rich opportunity to help our children grow in the midst of sorrow. Many of us wish we had the same opportunity when we were younger to learn about how Jesus helps us in our sadness. Henry has experienced loss. In this story, he lost a pet ladybug, but the loss could be a friendship, a friend, a relative, a precious toy, or even a blanket that has been a lifelong comfort. Grief and sadness are our natural response to losing something important to us. Here are some truths in the Bible to share as you talk with your child about loss. And it goes on about all these good biblical truths and how God doesn't minimize our loss and grief, how the gospel speaks into our loss and grief. And honestly, I think this book would be so good for you as adults and parents. 
Many of us grew up in families where we didn't talk about our feelings or emotions. We never really learned how to process our losses and our griefs. And I bet when, if you read this book just on your own as an adult, it would minister to your own soul. And as you learn how to share feelings and God's word with your children as it speaks into loss and grief as well. And there are other titles in this series, when you are stressed, when you are angry, when you want to fit in, when you fail. And so there are so many resources, and this spring, our education staff and leaders, they're going to compile a list and put it in one place on our website and email it out to the parents as well, because we as a church want to come alongside you, support you, and resource you as partners to help disciple your children beginning at home. And what it looks like to form a biblical worldview for our children, again, it's age-appropriate. That's going to change as your kids get older. This one author says that you go from training your kids to coaching your kids. And that transition takes place usually in high school, where you're not so hands-on as you used to be. But now you're more of a coach on a sideline. And now you're chatting with them between quarters, only during timeouts. You're not as present as you would like to be, and you can't make every decision for them. I think a really good example of this is, to use a football illustration, Super Bowl was not too long ago. Peyton Manning was one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game in the NFL. If you know nothing about football, that's okay. But what made him great is, Usually the coach tells the quarterback what play to run and then the quarterback tells all the other teammates in the huddle and then they just go run the play. But what made Peyton Manning extraordinary and pretty famous is that he would often change the play the last second and that's called an audible. And you might think that would drive the coach crazy because the coach told him what to do and he's always changing the play but he had great success doing that. And in fact, it didn't drive the coach crazy. Because Peyton Manning had this ability to, when he's standing there, to read the defense, to see their schemes, to see what they're up to. And in that last second, he would change the play. And it worked out a lot of the time. And that's kind of the goal of parenting, that we can't call every play for our children when it comes to every little area of their life. What we want to teach them is, number one, the playbook. Every play that Peyton Manning called and changed was still in the playbook. And secondly, we want to teach our children how to read the defense, read the world, how to interpret the news, how to navigate social media, dating, finances. And we want to give them the tools to do that. They may not do what you tell them to do, but the confidence and the hope is that they're still calling plays within Scripture, that their goal is to glorify God, and that's what they're trying to do. Every audible Peyton Manning called, it didn't work out the way that he wanted to, but that's okay, and there was a lot of trust, and he did eventually have so much success in that regard. So it's based on the word. Next, real life. 
teaching moments are everywhere and unexpected. Deuteronomy 6 says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, discipleship does not take place in a classroom. Discipleship does not take place on Sundays for an hour in Sunday school or in youth group. Discipleship takes place during the week in the conversations and the unexpected moments. There are so many teaching moments and a lot that you're not going to plan for. The mom I talked to shared how one day when she picked up her 10-year-old daughter from school, the first thing her daughter said was, my friend said that she's gender fluid. Unexpected moment. In that moment, the mom had to realize, okay, this is the time we're going to talk about this, how to graciously and lovingly talk about this, but also be firm about what God teaches in Scripture. There's so many teaching moments. It could be something that you watch in a movie or TV show, a lyric you hear on Spotify when you're in the car, commercial you watch, something they've heard or learned in school. Biblical worldview, it's not formed overnight. It's the summation of thousands of little conversations that you have on a daily basis, not in the classroom alone. Next, modeling is so important. Showing what a sincere and active faith looks like. 2 Timothy 1.5 I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. That word sincere means not pretend, not fake. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Paul is emphasizing it's not just what you learned. Lois and Eunice taught the correct truths, but from whom you learned it, their example, how they lived their life. Paul says they had a sincere faith. Timothy knew it was not pretend that his mother and grandmother were not acting like they were followers of Jesus. They were actually followers of Jesus. And again, the high schooler, the college student, the two young adults that I spoke to, this would probably be the thing they emphasized the most was how their parents were not perfect, but modeled for them what it meant to have a sincere faith. A sincere faith is not perfection. A sincere faith means, yeah, I know my parents are sinners. That was very evident to them. But they know their parents look to God's grace. They know their parents know the gospel. They know their parents say sorry and ask for forgiveness. It was modeled before their eyes. How do we model this? There's a few things I learned from them, and I'm going to share what I learned from them. The first is consistency. They all talked about consistency. The high schoolers shared how even when they went on vacation, they always went to church. They always found a church and went to church. She didn't like it, but she remembers this. They were so consistent, which is related to priorities. Consistency conveys priorities. It was clear to them that God always came first. 
and they drilled that into their family values and into their hearts, that God is more important than academics, more important than money, more important than being popular, more important than fitting in, more important than what college they go to. They really believe that their parents meant it when they would say, God is most important. Integration. They all said that their parents would model for them that God matters in the big things and in the little things. One of the young adults recalled how their parents would say things like, oh, I read in the Bible today and this is what I'm learning or I was praying to God about this or I felt led by God in this way. And they would hear their parents talk about God on the daily and how God would influence their decisions and their values, that they would see that their parents are thinking about God, not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday. Devotion. Seeing their parents' visible devotion was so impactful for these children who are still walking with the Lord. Their parents' worship, prayer, Bible reading, all of them whom I talked to, they all mentioned this one thing. I wasn't expecting them to say this, and it was really interesting, a coincidence. They all mentioned this. They all mentioned their parents' prayer lives. They all recall seeing and hearing their parents pray. Seeing their parents pray themselves, and then seeing and hearing their parents pray for them. One recalls how their dad would come in before they would go to sleep and he would pray for her. And he didn't pray out loud, but she knew she, he was praying for her and thinking about her. And she still remembers that. A young adult recalls how her dad would pray over her and her sister before they would go to work every day. Or how their mom would go into the prayer closet in their house, which is just a designated area in the house, an undistracted area where they could pray. And she just remembers seeing her mom go into the prayer closet all the time. This is so formative, these models and examples of devotion, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And when they all mentioned this, it made me think about my own parents. And I said, you're right. That's one of the things that I also remember too, so vividly. My mom didn't have a prayer closet, but she had a prayer mat next to her bed. There was a little lamp, her open Bible, a highlighter, and a box of tissues. And I remember I would walk by her room all the time and see her mat there. The Bible would always be in a different place every day. There are times when I've seen my mom praying. Other times I see her walking out of her room, wiping tears from her eyes. And I never thought much about it back then. But when I look back, I realize how important that was even forming my own faith, seeing their devotion. And next, confession, modeling confession. I mentioned this. For your children to hear you say, I'm sorry. To them and also to one another. They need to hear mom say, I'm sorry to dad. They need to hear dad say, I'm sorry to mom because they hear you're fighting, 
They hear all of your arguments. They're there. They're in the house. They know. And you don't have to pretend to be perfect, of course. Spouses argue. It happens. Life. You're both sinners. But to model forgiveness and to hear them say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And to see how, okay, mom and dad, it's different now. They forgave each other. They're not mad at each other anymore. And you see how they see how they don't hold it against one another. It's not drawn out for weeks or months. They can tell that there's no more tension in the household. And this is so important because that's the gospel. That Jesus came into this world to forgive sinners. And they need to see that model in real life. Because that could be such an abstract teaching. What does it mean that Jesus forgives me? Again and again and again. But then when they see dad forgive mom or mom forgive dad again and again and again. When they are forgiven again and again and again. And when they get to forgive you again and again and again. The forgiveness of the gospel becomes very real to them. I think that's tough because for many of us, especially if you grew up in an Asian home, there weren't many times when your parents would say, I'm sorry. To you or to each other, mom and dad, I don't know if you've ever heard them say, I'm sorry to one another. Or even, I love you. I've never heard my parents say I'm sorry to each other or to me. I've never said I'm sorry to my parents either, and I have a whole lot to apologize for. We just didn't do that, and it's weird. And I think it's maybe awkward for a lot of you. But to model the gospel in that way is so powerful. It is the gospel. You're saying, I'm a sinner. Mom and dad, we are not perfect. We are broken people. One of the young adults encourages students, I know they're youth students here, to talk to your parents about their parents. What was that like? You students, your parents had parents, they're called your grandparents. And it was tough, just like it's tough for you at home. Your parents used to be teenagers too, and it was tough. There's probably a lot of hurt, maybe trauma through the upbringing. A lot of things are still processing and working through. Your parents need a lot of grace. They're not perfect. I encourage you to pray for your parents. Extend grace to them. Forgive them. Even at times when they don't say, I'm sorry. Just like how there are times we don't say sorry to God, but he forgives us. Next is we need to go deep apologetics and doubts. 2 Timothy 3.14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. That word firmly believed means to be firmly persuaded of. Paul says here that Timothy not only learned, but he also firmly believed. We can say that that is the transition between him saying, this is my parents' faith, and now this is my faith. And that's where we want to see our kids get to where they can say, I firmly believe. But this requires depth because shallow faith is a shaky faith. A shallow faith will not withstand the inevitable intellectual, social, cultural pushback that comes along with the many doubts as well. One study discovered that 
a lot of kids, 40%, they're having a lot of doubts starting as early as middle school. And that college is not the reason they leave the faith or the church, but it's the first opportunity for them to leave the church and the faith. They would have earlier if they could have, because they've had these issues and doubts and questions that were never addressed. So here's a little pop quiz. How would you answer these questions? These are questions a lot of teens are asking. I'm not going to read all of them, but you could just kind of skim through. They want to know, basically, how do we know this is real? Is there proof? There's another slide with more questions. How do we know Jesus really rose from the dead? How do we know God is real? How can it be loving if people go to hell? What does the Bible say about homosexuality and gender dysphoria? One of the moms, I preached this at the 9 a.m. service. She read this. She was like, oh, heck no. She's like, I don't know the answers to these questions. And honestly, that's okay. But this is just for you to know these are what kids are thinking and asking. And maybe some of you as adults or parents are really thinking and asking the same things yourself. Maybe you have your own doubts that you're working through. Maybe your faith is feeling a little shaky. And so the idea is that together as a church, we want to equip you. These are things we believe every believer should have answers to. And so it's not to stress you out, but to inform you where we need to start and grow together. Lastly, church, if there's one thing you do, maybe everything else you're like, oh man, it's hard, it's too late, you don't know where to start. If there's one thing you do, just be faithful in coming out every Sunday. Be faithful. You don't need to be a pastor or a seminarian. You don't need to have read your Bible four times to just be consistent in coming to church every Sunday and bringing your kids to church and letting us as a church partner with you over time and equip you as parents. Bring them to church because you don't have to be your kid's spiritual hero. You might not be that actually at this point. It's possible that boat has sailed, but you can bring them to church and have them have other spiritual heroes of the faith that you can point out at church. So many examples of older spiritual fathers and mothers Point them out. Let your kids see their faithfulness, their faith, their love for the Lord and for the church. And this is most important. It's to pray. Yes, you are responsible for raising your kids, but the Holy Spirit, it does the work of regenerating your kids. In other words, changing their hearts. You can't do that as a parent. And so you pray, cry out on your kid's behalf I know my mom was praying for me a lot of those times when she was crying. She was probably crying for good reason, considering the kind of kid I was as well. Cry out on behalf of your kids. God is good. He loves giving his children good things when we ask for them. Let's trust that and pray to him. I know all of this was a lot. Maybe you feel overwhelmed inadequate. Again, no one is doing this discipleship thing really well. There's no parent who's saying this is really easy, which is why I want to close with this point. Parent, your primary identity is a child of God. 
I know I've been talking this whole time about you being parents, but that is not your primary identity. If you're going to parent well, you need to remember you are first a child. And your father is your heavenly father in heaven. It's hard to remember this. I read something a mom wrote recently, and I'm just going to read this. She said this. Last Valentine's Day, my mom brought, my son brought home a bag of Valentines from his classmates. As we looked over what he received, I spotted a homemade heart-shaped crayon. I'm pretty sure I groaned out loud. Seriously? One of the moms made a homemade crayon in the shape of a heart? How is that even possible? Did she melt them, then use a mold? I had managed to get my son out the door with store-bought Valentines and felt pretty good about that. But this mom had taken Valentine's Day to a whole new level. I felt discouraged. Again, every time I turn around, it feels like there's a new chance to feel badly about some aspect of my mothering. Normal everyday moments become opportunities to grade my mothering. I'm not measuring up. I'm not good enough. I'm failing as a mom. I'm especially a failure compared to that other mom who makes homemade crayons. Paul Tripp says this. He says, parenting is a miserable place to look for your identity. It is. To look for your identity in this sinful child you're trying to raise who's going to be disobedient, who's going to break your heart, who's not going to turn out the way that you want them to, It's of a miserable place to place your identity in something so unstable and so unpredictable. Of course, if that's where we place our identity, we're going to feel like a hot mess. We're going to feel like a failure. Parents, your primary identity is in being a child of God. Your heavenly father knows parenting is hard. How does he know that? Because he parents you and your heart. But he loves you. He knows parenting is hard because you're a sinner trying to raise another sinner in this sinful world, which is why your heavenly father knows you need a sinless savior. And he gave that to you. And it's through Christ that you are a child of God, beloved, cherished, adored. He does not love you based on your performance as a parent. Not one bit. He loves you because of who you are in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.14 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Timothy's an adult at this point, but he's telling Timothy, you need to continue. This word continue means to abide in the way that the branches abide in the vine. We need to continue to abide in Christ because he's telling Timothy, you learned a lot and you matured a lot as a a young lad, but no one ever outgrows the gospel. No one ever graduates from being a child of God. So parents continue to abide in Christ and your heavenly father to know how loved you are. I want to close with this, the last Paul Tripp slide here. He knows how hard your task is. 
He knows that it drives you beyond the borders of your patience and wisdom. He knows that there are times when you feel that you have no clue of what you're doing. He knows there are moments when you wish you could quit and walk away. He knows there are moments when anger grips you. He knows that your children can get under your skin. He knew what every piece of your struggle would be as a parent. So he knew that the only thing that would help you would be himself. Brothers and sisters, children of God, God has given you himself. He has given you Christ. So yes, you have a sinless savior to help you a sinner, to raise a sinner in this sinful world. Turn to him. He has the strength to supply you and the wisdom that you need and the grace that you need every day. Let's pray. Would you actually take a moment right now, parents, pray to God, ask him for strength and wisdom and grace. Pray that you would be reminded that your primary identity is a child of God. For those who are not parents, can you pray for parents? And if God does bless you one day to be a parent, that you would be faithful in this calling. Youth group students, would you pray for your parents? It's not easy raising you. You're a sinner. They're a sinner. This world is sinful. Pray for your parents. Pray that they would know that they are loved by their heavenly father because, trust me, it's not easy for them to always know that. And extend your parents a lot of grace as well. Let's take a moment and do that. Father God, I pray that you would, as our Heavenly Father, continue to parent us so well. Help us to know how much you love us and care for us and how our performance as a parent or in any area of life in no way changes your perspective or view of us. And we thank you that that is because of what Jesus has done. And as we turn to the Lord's Supper, give us more strength, more hope, and a clearer picture of what you have done for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.